0: Let Matt get on all he's got ready for us tonight and we'll have a good time together. So let's pray. Father, we so much need your help tonight because your, this is your word and are your people. And we have many things in our minds. So help us, Father, to get focused tonight on the way that we can best understand your word and to, to love, begin the step of loving the book of Revelation. I promise So thank you for that great truth we have, and and we pray you'll you'll grant us wisdom and grace in hearing and speaking tonight, and all that you have for us in uh, helping us get into this text, learn how to study your word, and, and to see how we can discover what your message is to us in this climactic book of the Bible. So we commit this time to you and ask your grace and peace to abound toward us in Christ, we pray. Amen.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm glad to, uh, to see you all here. My name is Matt Quintana, if I haven't met you before. I've been here at Harvest for uh, about five years now. Uh, I am currently a student at Multnomah Biblical Seminary over in Portland. Uh, and I've been working with Gary for the past few years. Hopefully, Lord willing, one day I will uh, go into ministry myself. And so he has been gracious and kind in uh, in training me and preparing me. One of the things that we've we've been doing together is um, trying to give me opportunities to, to teach, and so uh, we figured this would be a good excuse to study God's word together and uh, give me some some uh, some time to, to practice teaching. So bear with me as I uh, as I test this all out on you guys. Um, as Gary said, uh, this is this study is not going to just be about studying the book of Revelation. Our, our goal is, is more than that, it's to, to teach us how to study the Bible. And so Revelation will really just be uh, a test case for us as we study the Bible together. Uh, if you see in front of you, there's, there's a couple a couple handouts. I wanted to point your attention to one. It's the one that says Revelation Bible study across the, uh, the top. I just went back to school and so I'm getting a bunch of, bunch of syllabi and so I thought I would create a, a sort of syllabus for, uh, for this course. Um, the the topic just has a bit of an overview about what we're what we're going to be doing about the book of revelation but i wanted to to point your attention to a few things um there the the class structure um and just just spend a, a couple minutes telling you what what we're going to be doing so as i mentioned it's it's not going to be just me up here um speaking for an hour and a half like a like a classroom lecture that would probably be boring for you guys, and um, that's not what we want to do. So we want to we do this together. We want to study God's word uh, together as, a, as his people, and so um, I'm going to ask that you all come each week ready to participate, ready to, to be a part of the conversation. I'm going to try and do, do a um, hopefully a good job of engaging you guys and, and asking for your responses and for questions at several points. We'll split up and, and into smaller groups, and I'll ask you to discuss amongst yourselves. Uh, certain questions and then come back as the group and um, talk through those. Uh, there is going to be some homework, which sounds a bit scary, it's not going to be anything too crazy and I'll, I'll talk about that at the end, about what it will be like, but um, for starters I ask that over the next week, before uh, we, we start next week, that you would read the entire book of Revelation, the, the whole book, uh, and I ask that you would actually try to do that in one sitting. It sounds crazy. Uh, for the average reader, it's, it's actually not that that long of a book. It will take probably about an hour if you just sit down and read through it. Uh, it. It's really helpful to sit down and read a book through in its entirety. If you haven't done that before, I would really encourage you to, to do that, whether it's uh, just a, one of the letters or even a, a book like Isaiah. Uh, it's, it's, it's so great when you read through an entire book because you're attuned to the entire Context and the entire message of what the author is trying to say. You connect um, the dots between a bunch of themes and a bunch of um, a bunch of different parts of the book. And so, one of the things we'll want to be doing in this class is seeing how the entire book fits together. And so, uh, that'll be a good exercise just to one get your mind um, kind of ready for as as it was, we start each week, going into specific sections. You'll have the entirety of the book in mind, uh, and also it'll it'll just be a, a good way for you to hopefully. Um, Read the book and understand and, and see some things that you've never seen before. So um, I'll mention that at, again, at the end again, and, and I, I do have a little bit, uh, a little handout for you, just with some um, some homework type things at the end. But uh, but again, I, I want this to be something that you come and you're um, you're not just showing up to um, to to receive, but that you actually are, are, are coming and that you can um, engage and participate. And so it'll be helpful, too, if you read the, read the passage several times over. I, I have on the, the back of the, uh, the syllabus page kind of our, our schedule, and it has in red the passages that we're going to be focusing on for that week, and so if you read those um, those texts a couple times that week, allow, allow the Spirit to um, to start moving in your heart and your mind as, as you are reflecting on God's Word, and there will be some some different exercises I ask you to do when, when thinking about what the text means and how we can respond to it uh, that I'll direct you in each week. Um, a couple logistical things. Uh, if you notice, there's a sign on the door. One one thing that we're going to try and do is have the door closed about 10-15 minutes um, after six, just for security purposes. And so, if you could show up on time before then, that'd be great. Uh, there will be a phone number on there if you if you need to um, if you need to come in late. Um, let's see. Uh, there are a few resources that I wanted to recommend, and uh, they're on they're on the handout. Um, first, this is um, It's called a a scripture journal. It's by ESV, um, the the English Standard Version, Translation. They have produced uh, these little handy-dandy booklets for each book of the Bible, and they have, if you you look, they have uh, the text on one side, and it's nice and and like double-spaced, and then on the right side, they have um, some aligned area for notes. And so it's really helpful for writing down notes, writing down different thoughts, um, writing some references to other verses or writing prayers or whatever you want to use it for. Uh, these, are, these are really great. Uh, you can come see this after if you'd like. They're only, it's only like $5.99 on Amazon. We were thinking about ordering a bunch, but um, I know most people have Amazon, and so if you, if you want one, it would be uh, something great to invest in, and you can use this each week as you're, you're reading through the passage. Another book I wanted to recommend is, is this one. It's called Read the Bible for a Change. It's by Ray Lubeck, who's one of my professors over at Multnomah. He's my favorite professor. He's a, an amazing, amazing man of God. And so uh, this book is, is the, the subtitle is Understanding and Responding to God's Word. And so it's going to, to teach you how to uh, approach God's Word, how to... Uh, start to see what's in the text and how to understand that and then apply that in your life, how to respond to that. Uh, we'll be talking through some of these things just briefly tonight as we, we kind of lay the groundwork for going into the study. Um, but I, I commend this highly to you. This book has, and his, his methods have um, changed the way I read the Bible. And because it is the Bible, it's changed my life. And so I'm um, indebted to him. I, I love him. He's a, he's a great great professor, and so I, I really suggest that if you're interested, you, you buy this and you read it. It's um, it's very helpful. Uh, when we're talking about the book of Revelation, there's this little book by a, a young scholar named Matthew Emerson. It's called Between the Cross and the Throne, the book of Revelation, and it's just a really short, you can see how thin it is, introduction to the book. It's like 75 pages. You could read it in one sitting. It's really, really small, uh, really accessible. It's written for for the average person who just wants to start studying the book of Revelation, and it's really, really great just giving you an introduction, how to approach the book, and then highlighting some of the major themes in the book. Uh, it's really, really great. I read through it um, earlier this summer and was really pleasantly surprised just with, with the way that he was able to concisely communicate what the book is, is saying. Um, I don't know if anyone has ever used a, a, a Bible commentary. There's um, the scholars who who write commentaries on books of the Bible or on the whole Bible, uh, but particularly individual books, and they just go through verse by verse and, and say what what is this talking about, and give you lots of helpful information that maybe if you're um, if you're not um, formally trained, you might not have access to. There is a a scholar named G.K. Beale, Greg Beale, who has written a 1,300-page uh, commentary on the Greek text of Revelation, and it was so popular and so helpful that uh, they con- um, condensed it into Revelation, a shorter commentary, and it's only <laughs> 500 some pages, uh, which is still really long, but it's it's really good. This one, this one especially, is helpful because uh, it doesn't have any footnotes, it doesn't have any um, any Greek or any um, reference to you know. The history of interpretation in Second Temple Judaism, or um, a bunch of things that will, that are just even over my head, and so it's really helpful. He he is especially keen on the way that. John, the author of Revelation, is using and alluding to the Old Testament. And so he's um, especially helpful for pointing out those types of things. Uh, If if I was going to suggest one commentary on Revelation that would most align with with what we're going to be talking about, Gary and I would both uh, recommend this one by by Greg Beal. And then lastly, this is uh, another book that I found found this summer. Um, It's called The Heart of Revelations by a a guy named uh, J. Scott Duvall. Um, and similar to the, the little book by Matthew Emerson, it's um, focusing on the, the themes of Revelation. Uh, he's, he's really just pointing out the ten major uh, themes that he sees in the book and walking through them. And um, his, his argument, or not his argument, but his, his goal is to show how Revelation is a book that is relevant, it's a book that is applicable, and it's a book that's so important for our lives. And so um, I, I suggest this one as well. It's a little longer, but again, it's, it's really accessible. It's not written at like a scholarly level. It's written for the, the average person who is interested in studying the book. Um, so those are those are just some recommendations. Those are all listed on the, um, on the, the handout there, um, and I commend all of those to you. Uh, before we begin, Getting in further, I wanted to, to start here. This, is, this will be important. Um, the title of the book that we're gonna be studying is Revelation. You may also hear it referred to as uh, the Revelation of John or the Revelation or the Apocalypse. Um, I'm gonna call it all of those things. You can call it any of those things. So you might wonder, okay, well, why are, why are we starting here? Why would you start by telling us what the name of the book is we can read? Well, it's because I hear so many people say, the book of Revelations, with an S on the end. It's not book of Revelations, it's book of Revelation. It's singular, no S, so please do not say the book of Revelations. I have, I have one professor who, uh, if you said Revelations, he would make you get up and run a lap around the building and then come back. Um, I, I could think about doing that if it gets bad. Um, so, the book of Revelation.
2: Um,
1: That was just the schedule. You have that on on the handout. As you can see, we'll we'll for the first couple of weeks we've got a bit bit more content to go through, and we're not going to be going through as uh, large of sections. But once we hit week three, we're going to be doing about uh, two two or three chapters a week, and so we'll um, we'll be going over the the content of those chapters. I'm going to be focusing on on what are some of the major themes, what is the message of this passage, important details, and and identifying. the ways that it connects to the Old Testament, um, but we, we will still be talking about specifics and, and, and individual verses, but um, for the first couple of weeks, again, it's going to be a, a bit heavy on um, some introduction stuff, and so I, I will say, just from the get-go, that this week is especially will be different than the following weeks. Um, we're going to be spending a bit of time going through some kind of basic Bible study methods and, and how to read the book of Revelation. And uh, this is just important as we, we lay the groundwork, as we lay the foundation for studying the book. And so uh, I promise if it feels like you're drinking out of a fire hose and it's really overwhelming, um, it'll be okay. Don't, uh, don't stop coming. i, I say you'd uh, come back and at least try the second week because um, the, the second week will really start to uh, engage one another and, and discuss the, the book. And so, um, again, this week will be a little different in that regard. Uh, These are just the resources I mentioned, and then, bam, into basic Bible study methods. And so uh, the other handout I gave you is a a booklet that I put together. It's based off of um, this method that my professor um, came up with, and I just wanted to start by asking, has anyone here ever received training on how to study the Bible? Has anyone ever been taught, whether it's a a class or just in a Bible study, has anyone, anyone ever kind of taken a, a specific approach, I know that if you 're in sherry 's bible study they um, they have gone through the same thing that we 'll be going through and so if you're in her Bible study, but has anyone received any any training in that regard? Yes, no okay well um, a lot of a lot of methods for Bible study are, are very similar and it's not that my professor just came up with this out of nowhere. Uh, he's just refined a lot of the, the common um, approaches and we've I, I added some things that I think are helpful. Uh, again, it will be explained in detail in, in his book. It'll be explained um, in, um, in somewhat de- uh, detail in the, the handout that I gave you and then uh, this evening I just wanted to kind of blitz through some of the, the main points and then Part of your assignment for next week will be to read through the whole packet just so you kind of have a, a bigger picture of what we're going to be doing. Um, again, this is uh, from my professor, Ray Lubeck. I, I talked to him, and, and I'm using a lot of his notes and his slides from his classes. And so uh, I do ask that you would uh, respect that, that it's not, it's not my material to just hand out. Um, the reason I add this is because he actually has had a former student Take his class notes and try and publish them as a book. And the publisher came and said, "I don't know if this is yours," and that actually is what turned into this book. Is uh, someone tried to publish those notes, and then the publisher said, "Ah, this isn't yours, but this is really good material. Do you want to do you want publish it?" So he did. But anyway, uh, I'm heavily dependent on him. I'm really really thankful again for, for all his work, and he's. Um,
0: if you do he's that, will the curses. And he, you will.
1: Know. he will. He <laughs> will. Um, Oh, and, and before we start going through this, if you have any questions at any point, um, feel free to just shout out, raise your hand uh, and we will, we will discuss that. There will be several points where I ask you questions or ask if you have questions. but if there's anything that you want me to slow down or um, explain again, feel free to, to let me know. All right, so uh, in, in this method that we're going to be taking, there are four steps as we start to study the Bible. first mm-hmm. one is seeing these uh, this Step asks the question, what does it say? What does the passage say? It's going to help us see what is in the text and what's not in the text. The second step is understanding. It's going to ask, what does it mean? We must understand everything in context is going to be the key here. This third step, this is uh, one of the the things that sets um, my professor's method apart is he he makes a clear distinction between this step of, of what does the text mean and then How do we respond? How do we apply it? Um, So this step is going to be focusing on what truths, or shared truths, as I'll define, is this passage teaching. And then the last one, responding, is going to ask the question, so what? How are we to respond? How are we to uh, apply the truths that the text teaches? Again, I've I've printed this all out, and you can read more about that. Um, But giving a little more detail about this first step, seeing... This step, again, is about seeing what is in the text, what's it say, how is it said. In reading the Bible, it's important to know these three points. One, every piece of literature belongs to a, uh, a particular category, and thus it has a particular form. The category that we think we are reading and listening to affects the way that we understand it, It's point two. And then three, the Bible contains many many different categories of writing, so we must properly recognize the form of each passage we read in order to understand it correctly. And um, the reason this is of importance, as we'll we'll talk about um, more, is that the the Bible contains many different types of literature. It's not just one completely flat Type of type of uh, writing that you can just read the exact same way. It's like um, when I sit down to read my 700-page Greek textbook for school, and then you know later that night I you know I pick up uh, the newspaper. I, I, I'm not reading it the same way. I'm approaching it a different way in a different way. I'm looking for different things, and and, and so that type of uh, that type of idea is what we're trying to get across here. Is that there's different. Genres. There's different types and that's going to influence the way that you, the way that you uh, read it. It's going, to con- uh, it's going to change the way that you approach it and the way that the genre is trying to communicate truth, communicate a message will change depending on, on what type of literature it is. Um, so when we talk about these literary categories, there's three levels of them in the Bible. The first one is going to be types of biblical literature. So there's three of these. First one is narrative. It's going to be a text that makes its primary point by telling a story. There's poetry, which is a text where normal language is modified to intensify its impact. Various poetic uh, devices are used that affect how sentences are structured. There's usually a high concentration of figures of speech. And then lastly, discourse, which is a text that systematically and logically presents an idea or a series of ideas. In the Bible, uh, 43% of the the literature is narrative, 33% is poetry, and 23% is discourse. And so you have the majority is is narrative, but you also have a, a good chunk of poetry, which is important because most people don't know what to do with poetry in the Bible, but that's another class. And then uh, discourse, which uh, is 23%, and that's usually where we feel the most comfortable is in like one of Paul's letters, which is um, logical, and he's, he's making an argument, presenting a, a series of ideas. We most often feel comfortable reading that. Sometimes we get lost in, in the, uh, the metaphors and everything in poetry, and then with a story, it can be hard to, to sometimes figure out what is the point the author's trying to say. But... Um, that should help you a little bit with, with some of that, but uh, my professor's book goes into, into much more detail about how to read each each of those types. Um, next, on the next level, so you have typed, and then you have genres, kind of the sub level of that. Uh, you have, like I said, genres, and a genre is a recognizable category of writing which follows certain rules and patterns, and so. It's, it's just a subset of the type and it's, it's a type of writing that's going to have certain characteristics. You read one of these genres and it's going to share characteristics with the other writings of the same genre. There's seven of these. Um, I'm not going to define all of them. The definitions are in the handout. You can read through later uh, for time's sake. But there's seven, apocalyptic, epistle, gospel, prophecy, psalm, story, and wisdom. And then third, we have... Um, forms of biblical literature. And these are uh, the, an, another subset. Uh, this, this level is going to take place mostly on um, the individual words or phrases, sometimes paragraph level. And it's, uh, it, it's not going to be... Uh, if you notice the, the list that I have, at least there's not definitions for each one, and it's not like there's, um, there's necessarily like a, a this is the way this always happens. But uh, with, the, with the forms... You have certain, um, certain different ways that uh, the author might um, express uh, something. And so, for example, an announcement of birth, you have a bunch of these in the Bible. You have um, with, with Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel, with, um, with Jesus, of course, with, uh, with Mary, and uh, with Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. And so you have uh, these, these similar s- types of forms or patterns that you see Throughout the Bible in, in different um, narratives, and that seeing that similar pattern will just alert you to the, the smaller level things that the author might be doing and so um, those are helpful as you just notice through some notice some of those and, and again it 's not that there 's like a, def, a definitive list of these are the only ones that can happen, but as you read the Bible over and over, you just see these ways that the author might, uh, might do things that is similar to how another author does something. Um, again, the reason that this is important is because we need to recognize the, the literary type of the passage so that we know what to look for. If I'm uh, sitting down to read, again, a, a, a cookbook, I'm going to be looking for something different than if I'm sitting down to read uh, Lord of the Rings. And so what, um, a good way to think about this is like tools that you might take to a job, tools that you have in your toolbox. And so knowing what to do with different genres and different types is, is going to give you the tools you need to, when you get to a job site, you're in narrative and you're dealing with, uh, with a gospel, you're gonna know how to read that. And then you're gonna know what to do when you're reading poetry and it's uh, prophetic. And so that's, that's the idea here, is that you just be aware of these things and, and recognize that, uh, that different types of literature are going to communicate things differently. Another uh, helpful thing to, to do when, um, when we think about uh, this first step of seeing what is in the text is asking the kind of standard news reporter questions of who, what, when, where, and how. And those, uh, there's, there's a bunch of examples of that in, in the handout. And so when you get to a, a passage, just asking, okay, who? Who is this text about? Who wrote this text? Who is the, the intended audience here? what what is happening in the text what is the the author trying to uh, convey what is the the main idea what is um, the the uh, what is a repeated word and and you get the picture and so those are there's some more examples of those Uh, and so this is going to be the first step where we're really just observing okay what is the passage saying how is it saying it what is the author doing here and then that's going to take us into the second step which is understanding and so This is going to be seeing the connection between the observations that you've made in the first step, and then asking, what does this passage mean? So in light of everything you've seen, what does it mean? What is the author communicating? Uh, It's important to note from the get-go that when we're interpreting the Bible, there is almost always only one correct meaning to any given passage of Scripture. The correct meaning of the text is what the author intended to communicate. So when we ask, what does this passage mean? I'm not asking, what do you think it means? What do you want it to mean? What seems most relevant to you? We're asking, what did the author who wrote this text intend to communicate to the reader? Does anyone have any questions there? Is that, do we agree? Is that good? Okay. Um, and, and, Maybe for some of you that seems like, well, well no brainer, no, duh. Um, the, the reason we stress that is because um, with the, the rise of postmodernism and and all these things, there, there was this shift where people started saying, no, no, the author doesn't put the meaning in the text. I put the meaning in the text. It's what I want the text to mean. And so sometimes we still feel the effects of that in, in our, our churches. Um, and so we need to, to be very clear that the text means one thing, and it's what the author intended it to mean. And so when I say what the author intended it to mean, because scripture is both human and divine, it's a product of human authors writing the text, but also of God who, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, breathes into the text, it's inspired. Um, when, when I talk about the author, talking about both the little A author and the big A author, um, but what, what we note here is that the intention is the same. What the human author intended to communicate is what God intended to communicate. There's no, the human author meant this, but he you know, couldn't really know all of it, and so God had this bigger meaning that he, he meant. No, they both meant the same thing. God meant what the human author said. We good? Okay.
0: Question for me. Yeah. So on the understanding and context, you mentioned context earlier. Yes. Um, what would you typically look at in terms of context? The whole book or the entire Bible or extra biblical?
1: That's a really good question. Um, so I, I think that it starts at the um, the smaller levels of, okay, you're reading a verse or a passage, then you expand to the paragraph and chapter and then i do think the whole book um i would emphasize too reading um reading in light of the entire bible and i think that especially again this is another class i I love the i love the old testament or the hebrew bible as i like to call it um i think that there is there's real intentionality in the way that um the ancient, uh, ancient Jewish community shaped the Hebrew Bible and there's a particular order to it. And so I think like for that, it's important to read it in order and to see the larger context, not just the book, but that whole section of what's going on. So um, so I, w- I would say that no, don't stop just at the book level, but see how it's fitting into the storyline of scripture um, to uh, the, the message that is being communicated across the whole storyline. Um, I would say, with when it comes to extra-biblical background, um, to, to be frank, I would say that you, you do not need anything outside of the biblical text to understand the meaning. Um, I would draw a, a distinction between what the text means and then how it applied to different people at different times. It has different applications, and we'll talk about that. Um, but... The truth of the text, what it means is eternal, it's unchanging. And so that is communicated in the text. The only context you need is uh, the Bible itself. Um, and so that I, that's how I would approach that question. Um, I, I want to emphasize that you can understand God's word. You don't need to, um, and, and of course, it, it might be helpful to read what someone who studied it has, has thought or to ask your pastor to, um, to, to read um, a study Bible, but you can understand it. You don't need to spend, you know, 20 years and get three PhDs in ancient Near Eastern background and Second Temple Judaism to, oh, okay, now I can actually tell you what this says. No, you can read God's word and understand it. Um, so that's what I would want to, to emphasize. And so when it comes to context, um, context is key and the context is, is really moving out onto the larger level of the entire Bible. Does that, does that help? Um, this principle that I, that I just mentioned about the, the correct meaning being what the, uh, the author has intended is important, especially as we get to a book like Revelation, because there are a lot of different ideas about the book. There's a lot of different um, interpretations of the book. And so what we want to do as we study God's word together is to, uh, to ask, what did the author intend to communicate? If we're coming up with these ideas of, of what it means today, and it can't have been something that the original author intended it to mean, and then it, it just can't be right. It can't be what, uh, what he intended to mean. Yeah, Frank? I would think that
2: sometimes the case is that the author doesn't always know what he is communicating. He's communicating what he's you know, being provided by God to communicate. So as far as like talking about intent, I don't know if the author always... Knows exactly what they're saying. Like when, for example, I mean, when you talk about um, you know, how he was pierced for our transgressions and, and all, all these things that, you know, uh, we know what that means now, but at the time, to the author that had no idea what he was really communicating. I mean, God knew he was communicating, but did the author really know?
1: I would say absolutely yes. I think we, I think we completely undersell what the biblical authors knew and their genius, um, I think we also don't see the, uh, the significance of what the New Testament authors say the Old Testament authors knew. Um, for example, John 10 or 12, Gary can correct me, uh, Jesus said that, uh, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. He saw Jesus. And that he wrote about him. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. You don't believe me because you don't believe Moses. And so I think that we, we undersell what it is that the authors actually knew. And, and I would say that, that they, so when we talk about meaning, it's the, the universal, the, um, the eternal truth that they are communicating. And so the way that, and we'll talk about this again, the way that it applies, the, way, the, the exact referent, they might not know. But what they're communicating is is clear in their mind. Um, an, an example, well, to use that Isaiah passage, I, I think that the author of Isaiah knew that there was going to be a future messianic king from the line of David who would die a substitutionary death for his people to pay for their sins. Did he know that it was going to be this little Jewish boy, born from Mary and, and Joseph in whatever year at this time, in these exact circumstances, not necessarily, but I think that but I think we can say that he knew if he knew the the meaning of what he was saying, and again, the referent, the exact details um, are just are outside of the meaning of the text but the, the, the meaning is is the same there. Uh, another example would be with uh, with a, a book like Nahum. The author, the, the, really the main point of the book is that God will judge those who oppose his people. And so did the author know that however many years after he wrote it that the Assyrians would come in and they would wipe out these people in this way and they would, you know, they would... Um, they would do this to the city and wh- whatever. No, he didn't know the details, but he but the meaning that of the text that God will bring judgment on those who oppose His people is the same, and he knew that. Um, so that so the the distinction that I'm drawing is between the eternal the what I'm calling the meaning of the text is the eternal truth that is in being in uh, that is the author is intending to communicate. God and the author and, and the small a human author are intending to communicate. And then we have the referent, which is, um, which is outside of that. If you think of like a circle, you have the meaning, and then on the outside, a, a larger circle around it would be the referent or the significance. And the author, I'm saying, uh, always knows the inner circle, and then only God fully knows the outer circle. The human author might know some of the outer circle, but not all of it, God knows the outer circle, but the meaning is the, is the center there. So does that help, is that? Yeah. okay? All right. Um, Moving on to the next step, which we've talked about now a little bit, but with uh, sharing, this step focuses on the timeless truth, the main ideas that the original author intends to share with his readers. It's called sharing because in this step, we are seeking to identify the shared truth of the biblical text. And uh, a shared truth is a truth claim that God is communicating, that is, he's sharing, with all people, of all time, everywhere, through a given passage of scripture. So, um, again, this is what I'm talking about with the meaning of the passage, or the shared truth. It's, it's communicated by the author, the human author, and the divine author. And it's shared with all people, of all time, in all places. Uh, it's eternal. It doesn't change. And so notice, again, it's eternal. Uh, it doesn't change with, with varying... People groups, it doesn't change. Um, Now that we're in the 21st century, this meaning is irrelevant to us. It's timeless. It's universal. It must be equally true and shared between all people of all time. It's not just speaking about one person or one particular church in the past. And then uh, the, the shared truth of the meaning reflects the same point that the text itself is emphasizing. It is what the author, God, is sharing with us. It's not enough that the statement that a, that a statement is true or that it doesn't contradict the Bible or that you can find it in a verse. A principle uh, or a shared truth must be something that either is clearly stated or is unquestionably implied as the point the author is trying to make in the passage. And there's examples of that in the handout of, of uh, kind of poor examples of um, what you might identify as the shared truth and some better examples. So that'll be, be helpful to to go through. Um, a note here that is that every biblical passage is teaching these shared truths. It's teaching eternal, universal truth that God is intending to communicate. The issue is not whether some passages are relevant while others aren't. Rather, we are looking at whether both the shared truth and the specific behavior mentioned in the passage are to be applied today or if only the shared truth is to be applied today in culturally equivalent ways. So an example here. Paul, um, I, I believe, uh, maybe it's at the end of the Colossians, but he says it several times, but at the end of uh, his letter to the, uh, the Thessalonians, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, what does that mean? Is that irrelevant to us now? We can just ditch that or are we to go around, you see someone on Sunday and you give them a kiss, you give them a holy kiss. Well, the, the, the shared truth that Paul is communicating, the truth that Paul is communicating is that we should, uh, we should lovingly and affectionately care for and greet our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, in 2019, that's not me, you know, walking up to, to Joel and giving him a kiss on the cheek. <laughs> it's maybe giving him a handshake or giving him a hug, whatever. Uh, and so... It's not that we take the, the meaning and then apply it in the same exact way, but we're taking the meaning, the meaning is the same, and we're applying it in a way that is now culturally equivalent to how it could have been applied back then. Does that make sense? Okay. God's word is relevant, all of it. Um, if you were here, give a quick plug to myself. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I preached on uh, this text in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 about God's word being inspired and being profitable for, uh, for several things. And he says, so that the man of God may be, uh, be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this, uh, God's word, it's all relevant for, for making us more into the image of Christ. All right, the last step is responding. And so here we're gonna be seeking to identify what are the implications of the shared truth for my own life, personally and specifically. <coughs> The truth claims to the Bible are not followed until or unless we respond in ways that are keeping with the author's intention. The Bible Wolf explains and demonstrates that understanding and responding are irre- inseparable. So uh, we need to then, once we've identified what the author is saying, we need to respond in a way that is equivalent to how the author wants us to respond. Because when the author is communicating something, he wants you and expects you to respond in a way. And so, how how do we How do we do that? Um, Again, every single passage is is relevant for our lives. Um, And then, as I kind of hinted at, just answering a few questions, though a passage has only one meaning, its application has many different forms. And so, the truth claims the author presents are not relative or dependent on the reader, but how those truths affect individual lives will be different for everyone, because we're different. 21 years old, I live at home, I'm not married, I'm in school, how a certain biblical truth applies to me might be different than how it applies to someone who is retired, someone who is raising young kids. It's the same truth, but it's going to work itself out in different ways in our life. And we can still follow it faithfully in the way that the author intended, in the way that God intended, by seeking to apply it in my own context, in my own life. Um, okay, uh, that's pretty much all I have on, on responding. Again, um, there, there's more information on the, in, in the notes. Uh, another thing, I, I like to call it responding rather than application, which is what a lot of people call it, um, it's not that application is necessarily bad, but when we talk about application, we tend to think of um, behavioral things, of what, what am I going to do uh, I think the purpose of the Bible, while well, certainly is to change our behavior and we must do things, it's, it's broader, it's uh, to affect all spheres of our life, our imagination, our, our thoughts, our attitude, um, the way that we think and feel, and the way that we live, the, way, the things that we do. And so I like the term responding because we respond to the truth of the text. All right. I wanted to move on now, then, to how to read apocalyptic literature. I mentioned the, the different types and genres. Apocalyptic is one of the genres right, that we talked about. And this one, um, the, the book of Revelation, is, is apocalyptic. And this, uh, this genre is typically confusing for people because it's pretty rare in the Bible. Um, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time going through how, how do we read it uh, and, and how can we approach it well. And so, um, try and go through somewhat quickly so we can get into the text a little bit. But uh, it'll be important as this will kind of lay the foundation for how we're going to to approach the text. Uh, real quick, can anyone tell me what this painting is uh, is of?
3: Right here.
1: Yeah, 24 elders around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. You see God on the throne and the Lamb who is slain. You have the, the different the different um, beasts. You have the seraphim. John is, is right there in the middle on his knees. The sea is like, like glass and flashes of thunder, or flashes of lightning and, and peals of thunder. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture. And we will get there in a few weeks when we're in Revelation 4 and 5. So, when we're reading apocalyptic, uh, there are several literary features that are going to stand out as, uh, as common to apocalyptic literature, and they're not going to necessarily be common with other types of genres within the Bible. So it's esoteric or mysterious. It's going to be a secret, hidden revelation usually discovered by the human author only through a vision or a dream or an angelic messenger. And so you think of revelation. That's how it starts. It's the, the apocalypse that is presented to John uh, by an angelic messenger or Daniel uh, or the parts of uh, Zechariah. Another feature is going to be the use of symbols and images. Things, places, and creatures take on symbolic meanings. For example, the statue of various metals or the four beasts or the dragon or the beast in Revelation. They're going to, take, they're going to be symbols that take on a certain meaning. Another feature is the use of cryptic and symbolic numbers. There's four beasts or ten horns in Daniel 7, seven lampstands, seven of everything in Revelation, uh, 144,000 number 666, which I'm sure you guys are all aware of. Um, And in apocalyptic literature, time is also divided into numerically significant periods. For example, in Daniel, we have the 77s, or time, times, and half a time, or uh, 1260 days in Revelation. Another feature is uh, an end times perspective. So apocalyptic literature focuses not only on the here and now, but also on the future, the past and present are viewed through an eschatological it's a big word, I'll define it later uh, or end times perspective this is seen in several ways so for one uh, there's pessimism about this age in the world the, the world is in such bad shape that it is beyond hope for reformation, nothing less than a complete destruction and a new beginning will solve the world's problems there's belief in two separate ages, we have now, it's a, a time of rampant evil and suffering and then the future a completely different time period, free from the ravages of evil. It's a belief in imminence, or uh, God's God, the, the, uh, the coming of God being just around the corner. It's a belief in life after death. And there's a belief in resurrection, judgment, and rewards for individuals. Uh, five, we have the unity of history. All <laughs> events in human history are following one predetermined master plan which reaches uh, from the creation and fall to its future climax. There's this view that everything is, is on this timeline and is going according to God's plan. God is in control of history. Universality, unlike the other prophets of Israel and Judah, the apocalyptic writers are concerned with all of humanity, as well as the angels, the earth, the stars, and heaven. Um, here's just a, a quick comparison when we think of prophecy and apocalyptic they're very similar and we'll see in revelation that the lines tend to blur sometimes you can't draw too uh, too much of a distinction but um, when we get to, when we talk about prophecy the writer's view is typically things are bad return to torah return to to god's instruction focus is on israel and judah and then the message to the people is repent when we get to apocalyptic the writer's view is things are bad a new creation is needed the focus is on the universe and the message to the people is endure. Another literary feature is a cosmic conflict. The whole universe is caught up in a huge inevitable showdown. You have the, the battles, uh, the battle between good and evil, the righteous and the wicked, God and Satan, good angels and evil angels. You also have this view that there will be a cataclysmic end. The world will not become more godly through a gradual process of transformation, but must be catastrophically (laughs) annihilated and then recreated. And then finally, you have the victorious messianic son of man, the one who will triumph over all the forces of evil and establish the peaceful universal kingdom of God is Jesus the Messiah, the son of man. Amen. (laughs) Amen. So here's uh, a few guidelines for interpreting apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic draws heavily upon other scripture for its symbolism. <coughs> and so the best way to understand apocalyptic literature then is to become as familiar as possible with the rest of the Bible from which it draws its symbolic vocabulary. Uh, this is true especially of Revelation. And so part of your assignment for next week is to read the entire Old Testament. So you guys are ready to, <laughs> ready to go. Uh, yes, you. You, you had a question? This is- for this too. Uh, I'm going to send them to Alyssa, and they'll be on the uh, on the Harvest website where you can listen to the recording. And there will be a section that says Downloads, and you can click on that, and I'll upload the the PowerPoint there. Yeah.
2: A lot of parts of this even the revelation are pointed out in Daniel, like you said, Daniel. Ezekiel. Yep. Yeah, and we'll we'll be
1: talking about <laughs> talking about all of that. Uh, Another guideline. So recognize the purpose of apocalyptic literature and adjust your reading expectations accordingly. This is part of recognizing the type of literature you're reading and the genre. Your reading expectations are going to be different. Many people approach apocalyptic writings with the goal of identifying present day people, places, and events as the fulfillment of these prophecies, but really to do so is to misread these texts at the most fundamental level. Okay, I
3: know there's different genres in music, what is a genre in
1: the Yeah, the Bible? Uh, in, in the writing of, uh, of scripture, let me, I don't want to butcher this, so I'll go back to my mm-hmm. definition. Uh, a genre is a recognizable category of writing which follows certain rules and patterns. Okay. And so it's not like there's this master list of genres and each one does things this way always, but uh, e- even... Today, as we read, we, we know that there's different different types of genres, and so uh, you read a, a children's book, and they are they have something in common. They're similar than, than is when you read a, a science fiction book. They're not all the same, but they share common features, and so that's what we're talking about with with genres is these common features that different types of literature share. so
3: thank you for sharing. No <laughs>
1: And so, uh, with the purpose of apocalyptic literature, it's not just for us to discover the possible modern day reference, nor is it just trying to unveil some secret end times code. Its goal is to accomplish greater purposes. Apocalyptic is meant to foster our faith and give us hope, encouraging us to faithful expectant living, especially during trials and persecution. Apocalyptic is meant to assure us of God's ultimate sovereign control, especially at times when he may seem distant due to evil and suffering we encounter. And then third, apocalyptic serves to warn us that this world is completely permeated by sin and we can expect to suffer as a result of that. Number four, apocalyptic apocalyptic teaches us about the patient justice of God God will ultimately ensure that justice is meted out upon the wicked. Five, the importance of apocalyptic writings is for present day life. It always contains specific ethical admonitions we need to both hear and heed now, and it challenges us to adopt a new heavenly perspective on reality. This is something that I'll wanna emphasize over and over, is that uh, the book of Revelation, it's important for us. It actually changes the way we live. It's not just about some far future events that we don't have to worry about, but the book is actually calling us to respond. It's calling us to live life in a different way, to adopt this perspective. And then lastly, apocalyptic teaches us the ultimate supremacy of Christ and thus evokes a response of worship. Any study of apocalyptic which fails to elicit our worship has died, stillborn death. I want to emphasize this too. If you, in your reading of Revelation this next week, you'll notice that at several points in the book, there are, are these, these hymns, these songs, whether it's by uh, the angels in heaven or the great multitude of the saints, there are these, these hymns of worship, and they're beautiful. I love reading them because they're, they're, they just evoke this response of worship. And that is what the book should do. It's, it's not, again, just a book that's, that's far off and, and focused on on stuff that's uh, yet to happen and we can just forget about it. But we are to <coughs> likewise respond in worship. And so I, I hope that as you read, you break out in, in worship in your heart. That you read John's encounter with, uh, with Jesus in Revelation 1. And, and it just makes your heart sing as you, you see the beauty of, of Christ as revealed in his word. And so again, this, um, this last point will be will be really important. So uh, are there any, any questions before we actually now move on and we start talking about the, the book of Revelation, the text? Anything that we, uh, we can... Want me to go back over or explain again? All right. Well, uh, before we give the text, I'd like to begin by hearing about your background with Revelation. So maybe maybe take a minute with the people next to you and talk about what you think about when you hear Revelation. What do you, um, how, how do you feel? Are you scared? Are you excited? Uh, have you been, um, maybe have you studied the book before or been taught about it? Just take a couple minutes with those around you and uh, then we'll come back together. Go. <laughs> All right. Does anyone want to share about their uh, their background with the book? Anyone have any any fun fun stories
0: to share? <laughs> <laughs> I just like you know, when I grew up. I think it's partly like what
4: catches your
0: attention, but also I think it's part of that era in the what 70s and 80s. Um, you know was kind of like the left behind books, too. Yeah. So that, that whole thing, I know it in other scripture besides Revelation, but really what caught my attention was just the like end time stuff and military powers and government and people and suppression and all kind of stuff. So obviously I've come to understand it's, that's really not the message of the book. It's not about um, really prophesying those things per se. Um, but uh, that's kind of the influence I had. Like caught
1: So who has read the Left Behind series? <laughs> All right.
2: <laughs>
1: well, I'll Sorry. refrain from commenting, but we will. Uh,
3: <laughs>
1: we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff throughout, throughout our study. Anyone else want to want to share real quick? Yeah, John. I think for us, the, the Book of Revelation
0: has been the source. Of modern-day false prophecy uh, in both of our things not, not necessarily in my family, especially in Julie's family um, and in friends that I went to college with. Um, and so there's been not in not in what the truths of Revelation. I'm not putting the false prophecy in the book. I'm putting it in, in the people, in you know, the modern-day people. And so to that extent, we've just kind of been like... You know, yeah. people, and you think about it, everybody that's passed in the modern day about it has been wrong. Because uh, we're all still here. And, <laughs> you know, but, um, so we just, we're like, yeah, we'll deal with everything else in the Bible, and we'll just Yeah. You
4: know, that's actually a really good point, because, like, some people are super into it, right? And, and if they know, and if they, if they're constantly quoting all these little pieces of it, and they seem like they have it so put together, and and you aren't anyway, and you avoid it, and they're not familiar at it well, you can't like you can't push back about against some of the more wackier things. You're like, hey, I don't know about that. Yeah. You know. It, there's kind of there's kind of
1: two two general responses. People who are just overly obsessed about every little thing, and you know. Every story on the news is some sign of the times, or people who, it's just scared, and they just, ah, I'll, I'll save that book for later. I know people who, you know, friends I have from high school who became Christians, and no, I'm, I, I can't read that book yet, I'm not ready for it, and um, what we want to communicate is, yes, you can, this book is for you, this book is, is, is uh, amazing. Um, so yeah, well, hopefully that uh, then we will, as we study together, we will come to love this book, and we'll see what maybe we have learned that is is is. Right? Some things that we might see that maybe we've learned that are wrong. And uh, again, this isn't going to be just um, me or, or Gary and I telling you what is the right way we're going to study God's word together. And, uh, and focus on the text and what is the text saying.
2: Well, ultimately, it's a book of hope and promise. It is. It's like the rest of the Bible. It is.
1: <laughs> and it's the cap, capstone of that. I mean, some of the, the most uh, amazing passages, the, the, the end of the book about the new heavens and the new earth, like those are, are so beautiful. And so um, so the book is a book of hope. All right, so uh, I thought that we would just tip our, uh, tip our do- uh, t- dip our toes in the water. There we go. Uh, di- dip our toes in the water. Uh, just with these first few verses of Revelation. So if you want to open up your Bibles. Um, one note, I, I'm going to be using the, the ESV, the English Standard uh, Version. It's the version we use on Sundays. Um, it's, a, it's a good version for studying your Bible. If you want to use another version, you can, but it might be helpful to use that one, so uh, if I quote a verse, it will sound the same way, but uh, here's the first few verses. Will someone read that for me, so I'm not the only one, only one talking?
3: The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All
1: right. Um, So I know we haven't, you guys haven't all read through that yet, and and don't necessarily have the have the clearest of ideas of what each step of Bible study will look like. Um, When when we go through this today, this overview, I'm not going to be walking necessarily through each step and. Pointing out all these things uh, that, that you'll be doing with, uh, with that method. But um, you will notice that as we go through this, I'm going to be taking that approach. And even if I don't say, okay, this is seeing. Here's step one or here's step three. You're going to see that I'm applying these methods. And, and really the goal with this is it, it gets to the point where you become familiar. When I sit down and study my Bible, I don't necessarily think of, you know, okay, seeing. Let me ask all these questions and let me do this. But, but it's, it becomes a habit and becomes so ingrained that you study God's word and you're noticing things. And when you really want to sit down and, and work on a passage, um, these questions pop up and you're, you're prepared to do that. So, um, so anyway, but um, I, I will ask, does anyone just want to make some observations. What do we see from this passage? What do we think this, this passage is about? What are some of the things that some seem to be focused in on? I know it's only the first few verses, but there are some, some clues here to the rest of the book and some things that will be important. So anything that stands out. Yeah, Frank.
2: And you mentioned earlier imminence. And so this is going to be and near. Yes. Uh, to capture the idea that this is something that's going to happen in the world. For a period of time a definite identification the first line this is the revelation of Jesus Christ it's not I mean it's not something else it's an identification of what what what's what's coming
1: next yeah <laughs> yeah anything else
2: it says we'll be blessed if we read it out loud yeah and,
4: um, blessed to
2: hear and keep what is written in it yeah so there's a blessing in
1: Yeah, it's important. So verse one there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, The the Greek word for revelation is apokalupsis, from which we get apocalypse. So the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And that tells us right away, oh, apocalyptic. We're dealing with the apocalyptic genre. Uh, The fact that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ tells us that this, uh, this revelation is from Jesus Christ. Notice something else in these first verses. The Revelation says, or the Apocalypse, was given by God. God gave him, and then he made it known. Right there. Uh, And then it's going to be about what must soon take place. And so these first verses provide us really with significant clues for understanding the entire book.
4: And that, the, the hymns and the his that you're referring to in those first verses—that's Jesus, right? Which God gave Jesus to show. Which his God,
1: God gave Jesus to show His servants, Jesus's servants, the things that must soon take place. Jesus made it known by sending His angel to His servant. Yeah. John.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so this, is, this really sets the stage for the, the entire book. And so as I've mentioned, uh, the understanding the Old Testament's gonna be imperative for us as we approach this book and f- as we, um, we see what John is, is doing, the imagery that he is, is using is almost always drawing from something in the Old Testament. Some have even argued that there's an allusion to every single book of the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament within Revelation. And there's certainly more in Revelation than in any other book in the New Testament. Um, I, I went through and did a bunch of, I, I think there's at least over 500, could be more, could be over 600, there's a lot. So we need to understand the Hebrew Bible. So again why, why your assignment is to read the whole Hebrew Bible, whole Testament by next week. Anyway, uh, when I talk about allusions, uh, I, I do want to define this real quick. So in the Bible, an allusion is an authorly intended reference to another text of scripture, And this can be through the usage of an introductory phrase, like as it is written, where they're going to introduce a quote, or through subtler uh, subtler means, such as a reference to words, phrases, events, figures, and themes. And so, interestingly, John never quotes the Old Testament. There's not one direct quote in Revelation. Um, But he alludes to it, again, more than anyone. And so in some scenarios, the illusion will be so clear that anyone will, will be able to spot it. In others, it may be a little more obscure. And so this doesn't mean that you have creative license to just this is an illusion, this is an illusion, everything is an illusion. Um, you have to be able to show that, that, that the author was... Purposely, intentionally referencing another text and um, the the best way to do this, the most reliable measures for determining uh, whether an allusion you think is there is legitimate uh, is through verbal coherence or um, similar vocabulary or style or or, or syntax, the the way that the the sentence is put together and through thematic coherence or uh, common themes and motifs that they use. Here's a quote from a scholar, Peter Leihart. You'll see that I always put a a picture of the scholar up there. So you have a, 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 just a frame of reference. My Professor Ray, actually, he always does that. So I stole that from him as well. But anyway, Peter Leihart, a scholar says, Revelation alludes to or echoes to virtually every book of the Old Testament. It is the New Testament's Old Testament-est book. John paints an apocalypse and the Old Testament is his palette. I think that's a good picture of saying that, that again, he's not, doesn't quote, but he, he just has all these, these things at his disposal. And, and what he is painting for us is, is entirely rooted in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah?
1: Yeah.
2: When you say apocalypse, I think of the, um, the apocalypse, the war, the end. Okay, you know? yeah. I don't think, you, know, you gave a definition, you said it means future.
1: Yeah, so uh, so apocalypse, and, and so I mentioned the, the Greek word in verse one, apokalypsis, uh, from which we get apocalypse. Um, the word means the the, uh, the unrolling or the um, the uncovering. The when um, when the uh, the guards roll or when the stone is rolled away from Jesus' tomb. It's apokalups It's so it's rolled. It's, it's it's revealed. And so um, the the word the word means to be revealed to to be rolled away in. And our time, it has sometimes some connotations that, that might ne- not necessarily be there. But um, when I'm using it, I, a lot of times I'll, I'll be, be using it as synonymous with the book of Revelation or just the, the genre of apocalyptic, um, which we, we've talked about. But, um, but yeah, good question. Uh, here's another, another quote um, from a scholar, G.K. Beale, who is the one who wrote that commentary, which I recommended. He says, simply an amazing fact is that God chose to convey these visions to John in the best way that he could have understood them, by using the language of the Bible. Everything God has given in Christ can and must be understood against the backdrop of the Old Testament revelation, which not only points to Christ, but alone makes it possible for us to understand who he truly is. By far the most important key to understanding John's vision is understanding the Old Testament. As we study the book, we will find this conclusion verified over and over again. so a question As we, we talk about the importance of the Old Testament. Most of us, I, I think, probably haven't realized how important it is to have uh, this background as an understanding for the book. So I want you to, to just for time's sake, we won't break up into to groups, but just think about this. What, how might this change the way you approach the book? What do you think of the fact that the author puts a premium on the reader being prepared to understand how the Old Testament is used? How does this change how we approach the book? Anyone have any thoughts
3: there?
2: It takes away some of the fear. It takes away yeah. the isolation of the book of Revelation. Yes. And you look at it as a total continuance of Jesus' mission and life.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's great.
2: Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, all of the Old Testament is alluded to in the Old, or all of the New Testament is alluded to in the Old Testament, if you read it correctly. I mean, the other thing is when i was I taught it one time in the other book and I, mean, I found myself lacking in some respect as far as understanding the, you know, going back to Daniel, bit, those Old Testament prophecies that tie in so much together with Revelation. And it's like you really have to get a good grasp of that to, to help you understand what Revelation say. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, one, one important thing I'll, I'll note, just because I, if I reference it in the future that I, I should point out, um, the New Testament authors, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Old Testament uh, was written in Hebrew. That's why I call it the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there are a couple portions written in Aramaic, but it's written in Hebrew. Uh, before the time of Jesus, there was an early translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek so that people who only knew Greek could read it. Uh, that translation's called the Septuagint, it's abbreviated LXX. Um, and so the New Testament authors, a lot of times when they're alluding to or referencing the Old Testament, they're referencing this translation. And so uh, it's one way that um, I'm not expecting that you're, you're reading Greek, but that you can, can see the similarities is that, oh, they reference or they use the same words or they, they quote um, the translation of it. And so that's especially relevant for John. He does that a lot. Um, and it's connected to the vocabulary and wording. Yeah, Sherry? Oftentimes
4: that's footnoted for us in our Bibles, so that yeah. we see that the Septuagint uses a specific word to make that.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, in these opening verses here, John is alluding to Daniel 2, verses, uh, particularly verses 28 through 29, and 45 through 47. In the Greek translation of Daniel, the verb form of the word apocalypse, or the re- revelation, uh, that word appears five times. The verb make known, which we have, uh, we have at the end of verse one, he made it known. That ap- appears in the Daniel passage three times. And then the word, uh, the word there for, uh, I lost my phrase. Uh The word, the phrase, must soon take place, or must take place uh, is used three times in that Daniel section. So John is looking back on this, what's going on in Daniel, and he's using the same words and he's alluding to that. But the reason that this is important is because in the context of Daniel, he was speaking about the kingdom of God, which will come to pass in the latter days, in the last days. What Daniel said would come in the last days, John now says will come soon, he says must soon take place. And so this becomes significant for the way that we we view the book, uh, which I'll get into before we go further. I I did want to give a couple definitions, just so we have, um, so we can be using these words. Eschatology, it's a big word. You can throw it around in conversation now, you know this big word. Uh, The term eschaton in Greek, it's a Greek, it's a word that means last or end. And so eschatology simply refers to the theology or the study of the end. If something is eschatological, it is related to the future or the end times. To the, it's related to the future. Uh, and then this phrase that you might hear me use, already not yet, this is going to be referring to the viewpoint of the New Testament authors regarding the status of the kingdom of God and the last days. And so the New Testament shows that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, established the kingdom of God and began the fulfillment of of the last days that are promised in the old testament and so the kingdom is here but also according to the new testament it's clear that things are not entirely finished and we await a final consummation that will occur when jesus returns once and for all defeating evil and sin and satan and so the kingdom is not yet here it's already and it's not yet does that make sense Okay, so so this is an important view when we talk about the way that the New Testament authors are are living and writing. In the the setting of Revelation, um, I'll get there in a minute, the setting of Revelation is set in these last days, which is not only concerned with the future return of Christ, if we go back to this verse, must soon take place for the time is near. It's not only concerned with the future return of Christ, but it is also containing um, an element of this, this already structure where we are in the last days. And, and think, because Jesus has, has came and died and rose again, we are in this time that has, has begun. It's been inaugurated already. And so uh, Revelation has this, this view of both, again, noting that the last days began with Jesus' resurrection. So rather than being purely future-oriented, which is how a lot of people think about the book, Revelation is a book about how the latter days have begun, are continuing their course, and how they will be consummated or completed. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, Matthew Emerson. It's the, the guy who wrote that little book I mentioned that's really helpful. He says, the whole vision of Revelation is in the context of the last days. And since these have been inaugurated with Christ, then the visions cannot be solely concerning things only in the future. So we do have visions of the future, but because the last days have begun, it's not only about the future, it's about right now. Isn't
2: a good example of that, just the fact that he wrote the letters to the churches. I mean, that, those were churches at that time. Exactly,
1: yeah, he he was writing and, and telling them to do things now. It wasn't just about, only about, about looking for the future. Yeah.
3: But can't we take note from those seven churches though, as soon?
1: Us today. Oh yeah, we will, we will talk about that in week three. Uh, the seven churches have a lot to say, uh, say to us today. Uh, I mentioned the word make known, which we see in um, verse one there. And it's also found in the Greek version of Daniel. So he's, he's drawing on, on this same language. Uh, the word make known means to signify or make known or reveal, but specifically through the use of symbols is how the word is used Um, it's it's to make known by some sort of sign and so this isn't just the general conveyance of information but it's about symbolically communicating what this means then is that as readers when it says that it's making known it's signifying is that we should expect uh, that what follows will be primarily symbolic not only literal so here's a i have a couple of quotes from from some scholars on on this uh, this word. This should warn the reader not to expect a literal presentation of future history, but a symbolic portrayal of that which must must yet take place. It is important for an adequate understanding of Revelation to remember that God is communicating his message by means of visions that are symbolic rather than literal. What they portray exists in actuality, but the vision itself is simply the medium used by God to transmit that reality. Again from Beale, John sets out the principle that the visions to be unfolded in the book have a predominantly symbolic meaning rather than referring in a literal manner to a particular person, thing, or event. Unless there is strong evidence to the contrary, the visions are for the most part to be taken non-literally. This does not mean that they have no meaning or historical reference, but that the meaning is to be found symbolically and almost always within the context of Old Testament <coughs> references which run through the visions that God gave to John. So we must distinguish between the vision given to John, what the vision is symbolizing, and then to what the vision might refer. There's always, there's always a literal meaning. There is something that the, the symbol means, but this literal meaning is only found by identifying what is being communicated symbolically. Does that um, make sense? Does anyone have any questions there? And, and just to, an example of that with, with things like, uh, that we get in, in the book of Revelation, like um, the army of locusts and they have teeth like lions and, and, and hair like, like women and all, all this other stuff. Is that or or, or someday is there going to be literally that that comes? Yes. No. Probably probably not. And we know that. And we know that because of the way that (coughs) apocalyptic literature is communicating. It's communicating through symbols and it's telling us something. It's telling us that there will be judgment and there will these these things will will happen. But how exactly they happen is not the point. The point is that they will happen. And so we're not to just try and you know decipher all these little things and oh yeah those those uh those locusts are actually these apache helicopters whatever that's what you, you want to hear
4: yeah i think a good example is to look at like daniel had prophetic daniel saw these beasts mm-hmm. that we are said are these kingdoms right mm-hmm. and that are they already took place and we didn't actually see giant beasts right out of the world yeah and so john sees these future things and, and i think we should take them in the same way that there's some scary things in the future that that will probably be interpreted yeah. the yeah. same
3: okay <clears throat> I'm a little confused because talk about symbolically and literal um, <coughs> symbolism are you saying it's not taken literally in reference to what Revelation is saying because that's confusing me because I thought that what the Bible says is truth
1: it is, and, and that's, and, and so that's, um, a, and maybe you might be feeling this way too, is that, oh no, if we don't take this exactly literally, are we somehow not obeying the Bible or, or looking at what it means? And I would say that actually, no, we're, we're respecting what the, what the authors intend and what God intends to communicate, because with, with these symbols... Again, the, the focus is not on the particular symbol. It's on the, the theological point that the author's trying to make. And so, you know, some of these, these symbols are, are so crazy. And it's that's what's confusing about the book. You have, you know, in, in the, the later chapters, like 18, you have a, a, a harlot riding on a dragon with a, a cup of wine that is, and she's, it's the blood of the saints. And that sounds like something out of some... Crazy sci-fi movie. I mean, but but
3: are we not to take that literal? So... Because it's...
4: I think the question is, do you expect in the future to see a giant dragon with a woman on its back flying through the sky? Or does that represent something that is real and coming, but it's not actually the dragon?
1: Exactly. It represents something that will happen. It represents something true. um, But the point is not about the... The, the dragon and the, the harlot and the the cup of the blood of saints. Uh, so we have to distinguish between the symbol and what the the symbol is communicating. It
3: was like when Ezekiel saw the will in the middle of the will. I mean, what was that? I mean, isn't this symbolism? I mean, you know, isn't Revelation symbolic just like that was? It is. I know we're talking about Daniel, but still, you did see that. He did, yeah. <laughs> and
1: And... So, and and, his vi- and again, the but point I, of I his vision is communicating he, something.
3: I know why he saw that. So I'm just trying to...
1: Yeah, understand. Hopefully, I, I think that as we move forward in these next couple of weeks, we'll start to see um, how, how this is and, how, and what is trying to be communicated and, and how we can respect and, and honor God's word and what it means um, by reading, not literally, literarily, Okay. Uh, is <laughs> okay. how we're going to approach this. Sure, yeah. So.
4: so. I, I was just going to say that I feel like even as I'm listening and thinking of all this, like it's that it's the hands-on piece that's going to help mm-hmm. me as I, yeah. I think as I'm working and I'm reading yeah. in a whole chunk of text to be like, oh, what's God? This picture of that God is showing me, so that I'm not stuck in those things. But it's going to take just doing it, I think, for me. Yeah. Makes sense.
1: Uh, quick, we got to <laughs> keep. Yeah, it well, I'm just going to
2: clarify. Yeah, for example. Um, you know the references to maybe an army of locusts or something like what Matt was talking about, the visions of the future. You know those are referring to th- to something that will happen. Some type won't necessarily be locusts with hair, but the idea that an overwhelming force of some kind, like how an army of locusts swarms in and devours a crop. Um, you know it could be helicopters it could be an army you know they didn't have tele- Apache helicopters back then obviously so john didn't write about that no one would have understood what that was right so to allude to that just gives the idea that in some form an overwhelming annihilation of an army
1: right uh all right we're gonna try and put through some of this I'm going a little bit got a little bit uh time left um the imagery of Revelation requires close and appropriate study if modern readers are to grasp much of its theological meaning. Misunderstandings of the nature of the imagery and the way it conveys meaning account for, the, for many misinterpretations of Revelation. So if we don't understand the images, we're, we're not going to, to get the book right. Um, this might be new to you. Sorry we don't have, we don't have time to, re- to reflect on all this. Uh, hopefully, as, again, as we, we go through this, we'll, uh, we will start to feel comfortable with this. Verse 2, we learn about the content which John will be describing. It's the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, The messages are from God. They're also about him. The revelatory word of God concerns what he has carried out through Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we are told something important. The words of this prophecy, the book is also a prophecy. And so again, apocalyptic and and prophecy, there's similarities. And so um, by, by calling this a prophecy... John is identifying this, and it's it's in line with the Old Testament prophets who share the same purpose. Um, The book possesses the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. Um, One thing that is important to notice is that prophecy is not primarily about predicting the future. It's about divine revelation, which demands an ethical response right now. In the Bible, prophecy is first and foremost about addressing present situations, and only secondarily about predicting the future. And so prophecy is relevant. It's meant to affect situations now, not just for telling the future, although that might be part of it. Uh, in verse 3, we find the reason that they're given. The reason is for the time is near. I talked about this, this, uh, this frame of reference a little bit, little bit ago about the last, uh, the last times being inaugurated with the death of, of Jesus, And so um, this connects again with the phrase in verse 1, must soon take place. John views, quote, uh, quote, the death and resurrection of Christ as inaugurating the long-awaited kingdom of the end times that the Old Testament books such as Isaiah predicted and that will continue to exist throughout the church age. He sees the end time kingdom of of Daniel as having arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. His prophetic words will speak into the heart of the present, not simply the distant future. Um, that quote, uh, I'll ask you this question we won't have time to respond but if it's true that prophecy is not meant mainly about predicting the future and that the uh, authors of the New Testament see the last days as already having begun what are we to make of the interpretations of the book which view it only as pertaining to yet future latter day events how should this impact the way we read the book if prophecy is not mainly about predicting the future so I'll let you, let you think about that um Back to verse 3, blessing is pronounced upon people, as, as Diane noticed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. You want to be blessed, you got to go home and read the book of Revelation out loud. That's why I wanted you guys to do it out loud. Uh, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, but for the time is near. And So uh, this phrase, real quick, if, if you can. Blessed is the one, is there anything that you think of, any possible allusions to other places in scripture?
4: Proverbs.
1: Proverbs? Yeah. Psalm 1. Yeah. Psalm 1. Where are the women Bible study use that in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. So blessed is the one who hears. Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the sea of scoffers, but his delight is in the instruction of Yahweh, and on his instruction he meditates day and night. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's a common theme here. It's quite interesting that God says, uh, that, that John says rather, uh, that blessed is the one who reads aloud. Right? Um, we, we don't think that Revelation would be a book that we would read aloud. And, and this is written to churches. And so uh, this, this is a book that was meant to be read in church. And we, we might not think of that, that uh, this way. And so uh, maybe we should start, uh, Gary had to so, no, dip out, but we should start reading Revelation in church.
3: I have to by here, but it's really good that the Bible that, that it says that because when we are taught to read, if we read out loud, we can hear and pronounce in the words they yeah. resonate. So yeah. Yeah. that's a good thing.
1: Um, that's not all. Blessed are those who keep what is written in this book of prophecy. I want to focus on that because that is so important. This is, um, is really going to set the stage for, for this book. Blessed are the ones who keep. Um, Blessed are those who obey the words of this prophecy. Again, this isn't just about the far future. We are to live out Revelation now. We are to be impacted by it. And so this is really just an important verse at the beginning of the book. It's, it's paralleled with a, with a phrase at the end of the book about the same blessing. And so blessed are those who, who read it and who hear it and who keep it. That's, that's really important. Another quote from Beale. You can tell that I, I really appreciate his work. Uh, the message of Revelation, as it, as it unfolds, is not designed to provide fodder for intellectual speculation about the end times, but is rather a series of commands addressed to the present-day lives of all who read it. It's so important because, again, this book is, I'll say this over and over and over, it's not just concerned with, with the future and we can just forget about it and, um, you know, that, that'll happen when it happens. No, we are to live... Um, in light of, of of what it what it teaches. Yeah,
4: that's, that's a really good point. It's like I'm tempted to do it. It's all about the future, or it's about those particular churches and lay or whatever,
2: and it like their issues. And not, like, find areas. Those issues are present in every
1: church. They are, yeah, and, and, we'll, and we'll see. And and just to give you a little a little bit of a a, a preview, um, no extra charge for uh, a couple weeks. Um, I talked about symbolic numbers. Seven is a symbolic number, it stands for completion. How many churches are there? Seven. Seven. So I think they're written to actual churches, but the fact that there's seven churches, it's addressed to the entire church throughout all time. And as you said, I I think it really does pinpoint some problems that we still have today and that every single church has to deal with. And so um, that that message is going to be extremely relevant for us. Um, I wanted to ask, what, it, what is the main point of this passage? Again, I'm sorry, so sorry, we're out, running out of time, um, and I don't want to keep you all, but um, it's good after you read a passage to, to ask yourself, okay, what was the main point? And that is going to be step three of, of sharing, identifying what is the truth that the author is communicating. And so uh, if you can, when you, when you do the weekly reading, um, That'll be part of the, part of the assignment is, is try and come up with a, a single sentence summary of the passage, a shared truth. Um, here's my, my shot at doing this for, for this week with, uh, with these verses. Revelation was given to witness to the message about Christ so that those who read and obey its words will be blessed. Revelation was given to witness to the message about Christ so that those who read and obey its words will be blessed. If I was to make it even more succinct, revelation was given for the purpose of witness, resulting in blessing. So it just gives you an idea of kind of the, the type of thing. And so, and so this, is, this is a truth. This is truth that the passage is teaching, and then we can in turn respond to that. We can apply it. And so how do how would we respond? Obviously, it's, it's a bit tricky when we have just the first few verses serving as the introduction to the book, but I do think that um, we can have some ideas of, of some things that we can respond with. These examples aren't going to be extremely specific, but uh, they're gonna help give you some, some broad ideas. So for one, we can start by reading aloud the words of this prophecy and by hearing it. It's part of your homework this week I mentioned. Uh, I asked that you would do that, that you read the whole book, and if you can, read it out loud or listen to an audio Bible. Um, there's a bunch of different apps that you can do that with. Um, two, we must also keep the words of this book We'll talk more about this each week as we walk through specific sections and and how we keep the words of this book. But as you begin to read, uh, start thinking about ways in which the book's message impacts your life. How does it impact your heart, your mind, your emotions, your actions? And then lastly, we too should see ourselves in this in-between age, in the already-not-yet, where we eagerly await the return of our king to finish what he has started. The time is near. Um, so that's all I have just for for this passage. Hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about what will what we'll be doing each week, what it'll look like. Again, um, read through that packet. That should be helpful. I, I do have a, a sheet with um, your the instructions for for doing some some homework. It won't be it won't be too crazy. It's not going to be
4: be anything too long, uh, but just to, to be able to start putting
1: some of this into practice. I, I hope that it will be, be helpful for you, and then we'll get together next week, and we will uh, go through the rest of Chapter 1, and uh, it, will be, it will be a great time. So thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, hope to see you all next week. And...